Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Kate Coleman. Kate Coleman is a women's rights campaigner and the founder and director of the criminal justice reform group Keep Prisons Single Sex. Set up in 2020, Keep Prisons Single Sex campaigns for the sex-based rights of women throughout the criminal justice system, as well as highlighting the importance of sex to risk, safeguarding, and data recording within the United Kingdom. Keep Prison Single Sex have been consulted by the Ministry of Justice, Scottish Prison Service, Regional Police Forces, and they have presented evidence at Stage 1 of the Gender Recognition Reform Bill in Scotland, as well as regularly working with the Ministers of Parliament. I welcome Kate Coleman to Savage Minds. Well, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. And what has been going on in Scotland has been at the forefront of my mind, especially since the decision in December. Uh, I have also been looking for women to come on the show, but it's been a challenge too, because you don't want to keep people from their campaigning. And what happened in Scotland to me was just a travesty of human rights and an oversight of every stage of what democracies are supposed to be doing, beginning with, as you know, from the 2004 GRA, most women, even most men, had no clue what was being put into law, even discreetly. And when I say discreetly, I mean, shouldn't overt threats to the rights of a protected class be put in the open and be studied, including by those in academia, specialists in the field? Would you not have thought back in 2004 that People in Parliament, not just parliamentarians, the people whispering in their ears, the people working in public advocacy, writing public policy would have said, we need to have panels set up over this because what's happened is we're putting gender as sex. We're we're clumsily writing into law things that make no sense when you sit down at the table. And if this were like a Scrabble game, the word would be canceled out for not following the rules. So in a recent article we ran just last week, we have on the top of the article by Sarah Fillimore is the picture of a gender recognition certificate. Mm -hmm. And it's a certificate that in fact demonstrates quite clearly what's wrong with what's going on. And I'm going to read from the gender recognition certificate. It's April Ashley's GRC. Mm -hmm. It gives his name, April Ashley, date of birth, gender, female. Already, like, one has to wonder, what are MPs thinking when they voted back in 2004 to accept gender when it was so shoddily written into law? And let's just go back to the fact, the basic fact is that I don't want my horoscope protected by law. I'm a Scorpio. (laughs) I know people say all kinds of things about Scorpios. I want people to be free and comedians free to write jokes about me. Uh, I'm also gay. Write jokes about me. The lesbian shoes jokes I hear every time. Go for it. I don't want people to lose their funny bone because I have a narcissistic personality disorder, for instance. And I do think that a lot of what's gone on with gender ideology these past 20 years is very much a crumbling of civil rights of those who actually are at risk by a certain demographic. And it's the empowerment of men in a world where women, especially in the West, are working, are I'm putting this in air quotes, taking their jobs, that's how they perceive it. 
anyone who flies planes will recognize what I'm about to say. I noticed this right after the Wall Street crash. Uh, if you took planes, you quickly saw in the years post 2009, especially, I'm sorry, first 1997, but then post 9-11, you saw an increase a rapid increase of male stewards where you saw a few before planes mm -hmm. suddenly became much more male centered in terms of who serves coffee tea etc and mm -hmm. and there's a reason for this it goes back to class-based rights who gets jobs who doesn't and i do feel like a lot of what's going on even though you and your group work on prisons this goes back to what is happening in western society when men are unable to square women's rights and to understand that we are human too. And so when I see, and I saw this horrible slow train wreck happening in Scotland, I kept thinking, is Sturgeon, you know, is she part of a cult? Has she been brainwashed? Is she paid off? Like these are questions that went into my head as a journalist because I had to wonder why even certain I looked yesterday, I've been looking for months for Labour Party tax returns. No, they're not available to the public. Meanwhile, in the US, everyone's been barking about Donald Trump's returns. I want to know if MPs are getting some form of incentive, even through investment, of this lobby, which goes to everywhere. It doesn't just go to Big Pharma. It goes to human rights industry. It's a really big industry to pay thousands into the Stonewall Champions program, put that badge on your website, put that on your letterhead, put it wherever you want, but people use this as a kudos institutionally to say, see, we're not transphobic, and we're here years later dealing with the most basic human right, women's right to not be locked up with men, not just men who are rapists, just, just leave it at mm -hmm. men. So can you talk about your trajectory informing keep prison single sex and the urgency of that in 2020 and where we stand today with that mm. yeah I mean I think there's a there's a hell of a lot of really important points that you made there um and I think you, you know you hit the nail or a series of nails successively on the head um in terms of raising questions about the you know the, the the complete lack of transparency and lack of openness and accountability about this entire process stretching all the way back to 2004 and, and well before 2004 as well and that this was a deliberate um, maneuver this was a deliberate tactic so I think if if we sort of start by setting some of of that that context if we I'm sure you're aware of this but some of your listeners might not be there's a document that uh, in the sort of gender critical vernacular is known as the Denton's playbook this was a document which was published by Denton's law firm it's now no longer on their website but fortunately very many of us downloaded it um I believe it was published Oh, maybe 2018, 2019. Um, it was with reference to a particular uh, piece of policy or legislation, I forget which it was, um, which was to do with expanding the quote unquote transgender rights of children. Um, and the methodology that it set out, it was basically a how to of how to get 
unacceptable, unfavourable, unpopular policy or legislation through without anybody noticing. So it was things like, you know, don't draw public attention to it. Don't engage in discussion or debate about it. Shut it down. Do it very, very quietly. Make sure everything happens under the radar and as under the table as possible. If you have no option but to start going more public, then we advise you to attach it to something that everybody else really, really wants and really does understand. So then either you'll still be able to take the spotlight off your particular issue and get it shone on the thing that everybody really wants and understands, or people will go, well, yeah, okay, it's still not precisely what we agree with and we've got problems with it, but it's part and parcel of this thing that we really do believe in. So we're going to vote the whole package through anyway. So we see that time and time again. Um, I think there's there's an example at the moment that's going through Westminster, um, which is the conversion therapy bill, right? We've got two things which are different in fact, contradictory, but they've been bundled and lumped into the same issue. You've got a ban on conversion therapy for LGB, and then you've got a ban on conversion therapy for the TQIA plus whatever other letters of the alphabet and symbols that we're now tacking onto it. You know, you and I know that those things are contradictory, um, but people really, really don't want conversion therapy therapy for the LGB. So, you know, that is something that people are going to want to push through. And by tacking on conversion therapy for the T plus all of that, um, it starts to shut down any debate. And you can always bring the focus back onto the thing that everybody disagrees with. But of course, you know, in, in the UK, there is no conversion therapy of LGB. All of that is already illegal um, and is already very protected against. Um, so going back to looking at more gender identity ideology and the GRA, you can see that this was a, a methodology, this was an approach um, which has been in place right from the start. Um, you mentioned the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, and I think that's also a very good example. Um, I think that Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP were banking on this being an issue that was still really very poorly understood uh, by the general population, by the electorate in Scotland, um, and that this was something that they could push through relatively easily. The speed at which that legislation went through Parliament, notwithstanding that, you know, they've been talking about, you know, there's six years plus of, you know, intention and reports and thinking about and that this was this was a, a manifesto commitment for many years. Notwithstanding that, when you actually look at the nuts and bolts of pushing it through from stage one to stage three, the rapidity of that process was really quite remarkable. And as someone who participated at the stage one uh, level, um, where I was part of a panel giving evidence before the committee, and who was present in Holyrood in the public gallery for the stage three debates in, in, in the chamber, um, I think you were really 
you know very accurate when you you describe that as as really being an abuse of of parliamentary process and democracy um you know these issues are absolutely fundamental um and deserving of far more scrutiny transparency and accountability uh I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, this, this is something I've discussed with quite a few people, and I, I really think it it needs much more publicity. Um, when I was sitting in Holyrood watching this so-called debate, I was absolutely chilled and horrified um, at what I saw. You know, you had 150, possibly more than that, really significant significant important amendments um you know dealing with issues of you know child protection child safety data collection safeguarding for vulnerable adults criminal justice system all sorts of really key important issues and they were just dismissed with arrogance sometimes with jeers from snp politicians um accusations of bigotry uh accusations of time wasting of filibustering um we had a a disabled msp repeatedly standing up and saying you know has has there been any consideration taken of the needs of those msps with disabilities or those who have caring responsibilities uh, either for small children or for, you know, partners or, you know, relatives um, of the impact of these very, very lengthy uh, sessions in Holyrood. And, you know, he was jeered at. And I've I've never seen anything like it. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon sat there. She could not have been less interested in the proceedings if she tried um well i mean she could actually you know a couple of days ago she refused to uh to come into the chamber to answer questions so i guess she could have been less interested but you know at that time it was pretty clear um the contempt that that she felt for the the, the whole you know, proceedings that were unfolding, you know, she was texting on her phone, she was chatting with her colleagues, she had her back turned to the Tory MSPs who were bringing most of these amendments, not all of the amendments, but the the large majority of them. She had her back to the presiding officer. Um, You know, SNP MSPs were glaring at their, their Tory colleagues and glaring up at the public gallery. It was absolutely disgusting and I think apart from what I consider to be the egregious content of that bill um, and how very important issues were not discussed which needed to be discussed quite apart from that even if you believe in that bill I think everybody should be concerned about what happened in Holyrood over those two days and over the months proceeding in stage one and stage two. Because next time it might be a bill that you do you do disagree with. And if this kind of totalitarian display, um, you know, which was an absolute lesson in how not to do parliamentary democracy happens again, well, then you might actually object.
It was absolutely horrifying. We're being punished for a judicial system that has already failed women in terms of sexual violence because it is the one crime that is the most difficult to prosecute. I remember post 11 in the States would talk about the Taliban and their ridiculous laws about proving rape and how many witnesses you had to have. Well, we shouldn't laugh at that because the West isn't much better. Mm. So women are unable to get sexual assault processed within the courts in most Western countries to a degree of 100% or 80% or no, it's not even anywhere in the double digits. And then you've got women being told, well, we'll put non-rapists in your cell. That's ridiculous. That's again, like telling me I'm going to win the lottery because I read it on my horoscope today. None of it makes sense. And we're being given the task of handling men's inability to cope with effeminate men in their spaces. This is what it comes down to. Anyone in a prison system who's worked there as a guardian, as a supervisor, they know the score. Prisoners, male or female, they do try to game the system. They, you know, Not all, but prisoners want to have an easier time of it. Obviously, men are going to game the system. We're seeing it already. This is statistically already out there. How many prisoners detransition when they leave prison? That was a shocking number to read. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's uh, there's loads that you said there that that's absolutely bang on the money. Um, and I think, yes, we are looking at something which has its origins in good old fashioned misogyny and men's rights activism. You know, there's there's other strands going through all of this. Um, but I think that is a very very important. Um, you know, driving force behind this. Um, and there was there was something, something you said, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it it reminded me that, you know, I've I've been reading up on these legal cases, you know, the the uh, well, I mean, you know, two thousands doesn't feel early to me, but I think it, you know, it probably does count count as early these days. Um, you know, that the, the cases that came before the gender recognition gender recognition act, and which were the driving force for that, and you see that again, it's it's sort of part of this um, manipulation of facts and carefully curated narrative which has been feeding through all of this and giving rise to really wide-reaching legislation which has a devastating impact on women and on children um you know if we, if we look at the cases Goodwin and we look at Bellinger and some of the others these cases were really really cleverly brought we had you know older, fully transitioned, post-operative trans women who were in consensual, um, lasting, enduring, you know, fully informed relationships. It was, you know, questions about marriage and it was questions about, you know, those sorts of issues. Um, so, it, it, you know, this was a very kind of you know benign non-threatening group whose you know emotional needs were being presented into my mind quite a manipulative way um and if if you look at how 
these men were were characterized and were described um you know it's it's what you said it's it's about men not being able to accept this particular cohort of males as possibly falling within the banner of men, falling under the banner of men, becoming part of that category of male and being, you know, other human beings whose legitimate needs and rights, it's up to them to start accommodating. So we see that, you know, that there's a great deal made of the fact that this group of males were post-operative And because this was in the context of marriage, it's about, well, you know, what is the function of a woman within marriage? Um, And you can see that it all comes down to the ability to be penetrated and the lack of an ability to do the penetrating. Um, And you can see there's just like deep misogyny running all the way through that. But this is a very, it's a very powerful narrative and you can see how these assumptions of you know it you know a a group of people who have an emotionally based set of needs um who pose no threat um you know because they're in sexual relationships with men you know they kind of fall under you know they're sort of gay Um, So they're not a threat to women because there's not that there's not perceived to be that sexual threat Um, post operative. So they can fulfill the function of a woman indistinguishable from women for the purposes of marriage. Um, It's really, really quite nasty and a very clever presentation of a series of legal cases. When you look at the evidence, because I'd always thought that. attaching it you know you you know we all know that it was a very clever thing to attach the t to the lgb because you know nobody wants to be homophobic we all believe in gay rights gay marriage da, 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 da. you know so attaching it was piggybacking onto a huge amount of political activism that legitimate political activism that had already gone on and then sandwiching it on the other side with the i with quote unquote intersex conditions you know which is you know quite an offensive term for what are a series of uh you know developmental disorders congenital disorders of sexual development with often lifelong and serious medical implications for the individual um you know, I always thought that that was another quite more recent and clever manoeuvre. But no, no, no. If you go all the way back to these cases, they're already bringing evidence to say, well, you know, actually, you know, this is also, and um, the, the terminology at the time was intersexed. This is also an intersexed condition. This is also diagnosable. This has you know, a set of criteria that we probably could be able to alight on. But, you know, they're sort of talking about post-mortem examination and, uh, you know, deducing that there are changes in in the brain. Um, But obviously, in the absence of being able to do that, we're going to use, quote unquote, psychological sex as a proxy for being able to make a more sort of robust 
uh, medical diagnosis on the basis of, of, of noting physiology. Um, and we're going to cluster it with these quote unquote intersexed individuals. Um, and we're going to give it that kind of legitimacy. Um, but if you know, if, if you read some of the, of the stuff that's that's said in the evidence and that's said in the in the judgments, yeah, it's really really offensive about these individuals with um, these medical conditions. You know, poor unfortunate souls who have no place in the world, and it, you know, it's it's really it's both horrifying and it's fascinating, and I think it explains a lot of the trajectory the momentum um and the current belief set of beliefs and assumptions which although they are being challenged much more you know by you by me by many others um and increasingly in the media i think we've seen a very big shift in the last week to 10 days um which i'm hoping we'll be able to retain um but it, it, it explains a lot. It really does explain a lot. And I think it also explains a lot about, you know, the sort of more older generation of barristers and judges, um, including some who are now sitting in the House of Lords, about why they are um, conceptualising the issue in what, you know, you and me and, you know, anybody who actually has some proper knowledge about this, this situation would really quite vehemently disagree with. Um, there was one thing that, that we, we keep seeing, particularly in regard to prisons. And I think the reason for that is that, you know, unlike in sports where, you know, you get Will Thomas or you get, you know, Gavin Hubbard or you get, I can't remember his name, you know, the, the Australian rules football player, you know, you get them pitching up, you know, and these massive, great, big hulking men. And it's it's completely obvious what's going on. It's very, very visible. Yes, that's the one. Thank you very much. Um you know, it's very visible. It's open. We can see the photographs. When you're talking about what happens in prisons, okay, you know, we had Adam Graham and we had Andrew Burns and that imagery was extremely helpful. Um, but mostly it's hidden. It's a hidden phenomenon. Um, you don't have the photos. Very often you don't have the names, so you won't have the convictions, certainly not in the public domain. You know, there's information that I have. Um, but of course, if it's not in the public domain, I can't use it. Um, so it's, it's, it's a hidden thing. And what we find is that there's this almost like this platonic ideal of this trans woman offender um, this non-existent hypothetical whose rights are more important than the actual reality for women. So, you know, we, we, we saw in the Equal Treatment Bench book, which is, you know, the mighty tome that's handed out to courts and tribunals for, uh, for judges and other officials to gain guidance for you know it's it's an absolutely legitimate you know it's about making sure that the the court process is as equitable and as fair as possible for all sorts of different protected characteristics you know whether 
you know, it's disabilities or whatever. You know, it's 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 not a bad document in many respects. Um, but when you look at the gender reassignment chapter, the transgender chapter, you have you know this 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 trans woman who, and it says, will have lived her entire adult life as a wife and mother. Really? And when we look at um, some of the comments that were made in the House of Lords at the beginning of 2022 and the end of 2021, um, when amendments to the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill were brought, which would have afforded women in prison greater protection from males being housed with them. Again, these sorts of descriptions of a hypothetical were were brought as as having more importance than the lived reality of women. So, you know, somebody, you know, willowy and effeminate and convicted of a a low-level non-violent crime and, you know, obviously vulnerable and long since transitioned and, you know, fully post-operative and 100% passing, all of that is the thing that carries more weight than what I know to be the case, which is men um, complete with male genitalia, um, obviously heterosexual because they like to use them, um, convicted of very serious violent and sexual offences against women, against children, also against other men, um, and behaving in sexually threatening, violent ways. Um, that is the reality and absolutely not passing in any way, shape or form. But that reality is not important. It's the idea that exists in people's heads. And if that is not the ultimate in misogyny, I really don't know what is. Does anyone wonder why ROGD is a thing? It's being propagated as if the new word of God. So kids are coming home saying, mom, call me they, mom, call me he. And parents are taken aback by what is not only rapid onset gender dysphoria in terms of an organic thing happening amongst kids on the schoolyard. This is coming from the state level. This is coming because of organizations like Mesmac, another story I am working on, has received hundreds of thousands of pounds in the city of Hull and leads to do exactly this. I'm very frustrated by this, not just because, Kate, it's about men with penises in prisons. I don't care if they have a penis or not. It's really off the table for me that anyone who's a man is in prison. I do not care how he calls himself. I do not care what he dresses as. I am sick and tired that we are given the historical laundry of men to sort out. They should be doing this. We need to tell men deal with it. You deal with the fact that you have a man who is not like you. Deal with the fact that you have a man in a pink frock. Deal with a man who calls himself Loretta. But why is this our problem? When we saw that a lot of people did not care about the prison issue when it was raised over these last five years a lot, especially by Fair Play for Women, what they cared about was men and women's sports. So you have people like their eyes open when it's unfairness in sports, but not women being raped in prison. That's insane to me. 
Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, I mean, there's lots here. I mean, firstly, I just want to say I'm really pleased that you're going after Mesmac because <laughs> they're up to their necks in it and we need loads of sunlight on that. Um, and yes, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant grift, isn't it? Um, you know, forcing organisations to cough up huge amounts of money so they can, you know, score points on the divide, the divide, the, the diversity scheme and, uh, you know, sort of go up the ladder of acceptability. Um, I know, you know, I think there's there's loads of us in of, in this campaign um, who are quite, you know, I count myself in this, you know, I realise that if times had been different, and if all of this had been happening when I was a child, I would have been trans like that. You know, when I was a child, I think we're probably more or less the same generation. But, you know, when I was a child, girls who were fleeing the pressures of cultural stereotypes of femininity, um, you know, what what did we do? You know, we self-harmed. Um, you know, we got pregnant because we went in the opposite direction of, you know, we sort of embraced those toxic beliefs about us um, as a way to, you know, kind of control that narrative. Um, or, you know, we became anorexic. That's what we did in order to flee um, those pressures and in order to externalise um psychological distress now it's transgenderism now it's becoming non-binary now it's breast binders now it's you know going full-blown transgender you know it, it's those sorts of things that we're seeing now and you know when you, you said that you know you were playing in the cornfields and street hockey and all of that you know I wasn't dissimilar um and you know I, I would have been trans like that without a doubt um and thank god I wasn't you know but you know when we were talking yeah you were, so you, were ta- you were talking about Nicola Sturgeon um I think there's a lot that we haven't seen yet in terms of what's been driving this you know we know that many of the the so-called women's rights organizations that she and her government were consulting on this bill um they're funded they receive funding from the scottish government and they are very much you know kind of kowtowing to that narrative so that you know there's a complete lack of objective impartial input into this bill Well, let's talk about the social unconscious of misogyny. It's not just the GRE. Mm. The fact that the judge's bench book or the judicial handbook for judges is replete Mm -hmm. in misogyny. And I think we need to start to talk about social and cultural misogyny because it's not about, again, just Mm. rape. I'm sick of this coming Mm. down only to penises and rape. To what degree is it even ethical to ask anyone to lie about sex, male or female? Sex is a reality. We perceive people as they are. This is the myth, isn't it, that sex is something about which it is even possible to be private. You can't. You know, it's, it, it is a ridiculous notion. Um, 
And, you know, if, if you look at the enhanced privacy rights that are awarded in the UK when anybody changes their gender as part of changing their identity, whether or not they get a gender recognition certificate, it's actually quite extraordinary. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm really concerned that this notion that your sex is something about which you can and should legitimately be entitled to have kept secret to be private is just utterly nonsense you know sex registered at birth is part of the core data about an individual um you know which the state has a legitimate interest in recording um and which is so important for you know organizations to to exercise their statutory responsibilities for safeguarding for example you know i don't believe that anybody should be able to hide their sex registered at birth or lie about it you mentioned gender recognition certificate it says it says gender female it doesn't say sex female but suddenly for privacy reasons for this enhanced set of privacy rights people are allowed to have got a gender recognition certificate and even those who haven't you know we see with the disclosure and barring service that they treat those who've changed gender um by a process of self declaration in exactly the same way that they treat people who've got a gender recognition certificate suddenly this group of people is permitted to record this legally recognized acquired gender in lieu of their sex registered at birth from that point forwards going on you know and that the idea that somebody can get a new copy birth certificate is is just it's ridiculous i mean why are telling you it's ridiculous you know it's ridiculous i taught queer theory when it was actually about gay rights, gay liberation, not at all this. And that's how it began. My question about what's gone on with the transgender project, formerly the transsexual project, it arose at a time of incredible sexism. Mm. And I always remind listeners that history is not teleological. It's not that we began as an ape and we end up in outer space. That's not how it works. We have rights that we have to fight for and that are withdrawn, just as we're seeing right now. And it's not a coincidence that it's not men's rights being threatened. It's not a coincidence that men are having us sort their sock drawers, I like to call it. It's always been women's jobs to sort out men's problems and historically and we're saying no to that and i'm saying further that gender ideology is as valid as my belief in astrology i do not believe that my personal proclivities to believe that mercury rising means i should be careful when i'm driving my car that day should be written into law because it is an unproven belief. Gender is a belief. It is a social structure of stereotyping historical and even current ideas about people. Well, I think that's where they were so clever. That's where they were so clever with um, in the early legal cases with trying to shoehorn it into what they called intersex conditions. Um, and make it a legitimate, diagnosable um, 
medical condition. You know, it, it wasn't even diagnosis of gender identity dysphoria. You know, it, it wasn't even, you know, what, what does that mean? You know, it's still a diagnosis, quote unquote, but what the hell does that actually mean? You know, but they were very careful to do it right at the beginning um, to give it some medical credibility to make it a proper diagnosis. You know, these quote unquote, I'm going to keep calling them intersexed conditions, not because that's my preferred terminology, but because, you know, I, th I think it adds to understanding what that narrative was. Um, but, you know, intersexed conditions have a physiological basis you know, it's genetic basis, it's a congenital disorders of sexual development. So, you know, they, they kind of shoehorned it in for everything, didn't they? That it was something that was determined at conception. It was something that you were born with. It's something that is diagnosable. Um, it's something that has a physiological basis although they conceded that you needed when you were you were diagnosing it you needed to look at quote unquote psychological sex as a proxy um and it, it's something that can be treated including uh through medical intervention and surgical intervention, it's something which did necessitate a correction to the birth certificate if there was a genuine mistake ma made. Um, you know, and, and, and that's quite correct. In the vanishingly small number of babies that are incorrectly observed to be you know, the wrong sex at birth, you know, subsequent to medical investigation, if a correction needs to be made, then the original birth record will be updated. There will be a note made and it will be updated. And that is absolutely correct and absolutely proper and right thing to do. So they were very careful to force this, as you say, completely nonsensical, irrational belief um, into something which had a basis and you know looking at that group of individuals you know, I mean I you know they were they were described in incredibly patronizing and offensive terms as you know poor unfortunate souls so you know I, I think it was a very clever maneuver um, and it, it it had this impact going all the way through um, which explains a lot of the, you know, why it's viewed as a real thing, why it's viewed as something where these changes to legislation, to identity documents, to your birth certificate must be made because that was how they positioned it. And they were, they were very, very clever in doing so. You're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Religious belief is protected not because the protection is 
God really does exist or God really doesn't exist. That's not what's being protected. When religion is protected, it's the right to have the belief and not face discrimination. And you said mm. this in the interview you just gave yesterday, that these men and women who identify as transgender have all the rights that they claim yes, they don't. Yes. And this is the red herring that they love to throw out there. But there's a few things going on here with this lobby that has been successful because it has astroturfed its way to the media. And astroturfing is a very pernicious tool. You start to look at, in the piece that I'm re researching with the NUJ and Ofcom and all the media organizations, including the AAP in Australia, the AAP did something that's very interesting, and I think Stephanie Davies or I would love to hear this. They referred to me and their response as to why did you run a piece referring to men as women. They referred me to a NGO in Australia that specifically works with suicide. So transgender trend rang the bell on this years ago saying that parents are being bullied into accepting their child's quote-unquote gender identity because of suicide threats. But guess what? It's happening within the media now. They're being told, yeah. just as we are instructed how to report on suicide, we are now two degrees of separation. It's not only how to report on suicide, it's how to report on any lobby that uses suicide as a threat. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. That is unethical. Because now we are having language that is being thrown into our mouths. I will not use it. And I can tell you something else. I will always put transgender in quotes now, or I put sick transgender mm. in the Latin sick, mm. not S-I-C-K, yeah, yeah, yeah. but S-I-C, in, in referring to it, because I think it's imperative upon all of us to stop parroting a narrative mm. that has gone so far as to whitewash our media language, the media honesty, the reporting on this is grossly inept. You yeah. saw this. Every group I've been in since 2013 where women are highlighting the BBC did this. How many BBC posts and coverage have we seen where women aren't even interviewed? Mm. Not even interviewed. It's two men in a dress being interviewed about women's rights. Yeah. It beggars belief. It would be like in interviewing two clan members yeah. about African-American rights. I cannot believe that this is going on, but this is how pernicious misogyny is. I mean, I, I, I think language, what you, what you talked about, is like the power of naming, isn't it? And it's the power of being able to define the concepts and make, you know, to get a bit Orwellian on us, but why not, to make certain thoughts un unthinkable. Because if you successfully rid the language of, of being able to refer to certain concepts then certain things can't be thought you know and I, I think you know I, I'm, I know that you'll be aware of this because before I got banned on Facebook I remember we were in some of the same groups that if you look at the development of language around this issue you know, I'm not I'm not even going to get into, you know, the change from transsexual to transgender. But if you just look at how trans woman as a concept has developed, you know, you had trans woman as a single word. So it's a noun. And, you know, it might not be exactly the same as a woman because you've got trans woman, but it's definitely not a man. It's something separate from a man because you need to have a separate word to refer to this person. So possibly not like a woman exactly, but 
similar to a woman and definitely not a man. So that has usage for a while. And then you have the very, very crucial split. It's split into two words. It's split into trans, which is the adjective, and woman, which is the noun. And that was a very, very powerful moment in this narrative and in this ideology, because now a trans woman is a woman like any other that is described by the adjective trans. And we saw those arguments really starting to gain force. You know, if you're going to discriminate, quote unquote, against a trans woman, a woman who is trans, then surely that's akin to discriminating against a Jewish woman or a black woman or a gay woman or an old woman or another ethnic minority woman. Um, And that was a very powerful moment um which i'm sure you predicted i know i predicted it i was just like waiting <laughs> for this to happen bingo it happened there was a bit of a, a a sort of jockeying for position of for woman of trans experience i don't that hasn't really gained you know usage over here over this side of the pond um and again it's it's sort of the conceptual shift that when it was trans woman as a single word, they were kind of mostly happy to say, well, you know, we'll still concede that we are of the male sex. Um, But then as soon as the word was split into two, no, suddenly we're female. And you have to be female because logically you have to be female if you're going to have that kind of you know conceptual consistency because we're using the noun woman now to refer to this individual um and you you know this has now happened in policy documents this has happened in guidance um you know my my phone and my macbook quite cheerfully correct me to trans woman two words which is intensely irritating but i note they don't do that with trans man that gets auto corrected to tradesman which is quite interesting so again you know we're looking at the misogyny within this you know it's a men's rights activist movement you know and it, you know, again, I know you will have observed this, you know, when you're looking at, you know, what are trans women in quotes famous for? They're politicians, they're journalists, they're scientists, they're sports women, um, they're film directors, you know, they're high journalists, they're high level movers and shakers, the thought leaders that are seeking to, you know, drive this shift, drive, you know, society going forward. Forwards. What are quote unquote trans men famous for? Mostly it's getting pregnant or being in pornography. I'm never going to get over the fact that no media person outside of people like Graham Lennon and myself and others on our side of this debate are pointing out the obvious. If you have gender dysphoria and you are a woman, and you claim to be a man, the last thing, according to what gender dysphoria is, the last thing you should want to do at all, ever, is to get pregnant. Now, this is a real problem, how these people are being then 
given that nomination of, you know, d'origine controllato trans, and, you know, they're like a DOC protected wine. And it's completely illogical. So we've been fed the most crazy straw argument out there that trans, they have a dysphoria. It's a dysphoria, which means that they are at odds with their sex body. If you are at odds with your sex body, that's the argument goes, they need to take testosterone. If they are a woman, they need to take estrogen. If they're a man, they need to stay away from everything that is stereotypically, historically linked to being a sick woman or man in their eyes but you can still get knocked up right i mean yes and they not only get pregnant but then it becomes its own media story exactly anyone who's pro transgender rights as they think of themselves needs to check out just lift up the carpet here a little bit and see the dust because Mm. this is old school misogyny and i feel badly for these women who are pulled out onto stage with their mm-hmm. beards and their bellies. Mm-hmm. And this is something that so few major media establishments discuss. We need to start talking about it because what we are seeing is also an elision by medical experts to talk about the dangers of synthetic hormones on the body. Mm-hmm. When I was interviewing a cardiologist from an American university, he told me quite clearly that it has been known since the 1970s drug project where men were given estrogen, that they were dying at such high rates that the project had to be shut down. Well, that's appalling, isn't it? Absolutely appalling. But but then then, then they don't even want to they don't even want to follow that. Right. I mean, you know, all of this stuff about, you know, changing the recording of your sex and substituting your your gender identity your acquired gender including for medical records i mean you know what are we seriously doing are you expecting cancer registries to meaningfully record the incidence of prostate cancer in women i mean for god's sake you know something like that you know which is the reductio ad absurdum of this is actually relatively easy to decode. Obviously, you know, you can work out what's going on. What is more problematic would be something where you do have an incidence of a disease in both sexes, you know, but, you know, perhaps it's, it is strongly, you know, clustered around one sex than the other. So, you know, I'm thinking of something like breast cancer, right? A very, very small minority of men do get breast cancer you know it makes sense to code for it but you know what happens suddenly if um, that rate increases what is going on you need to start being able to disentangle that in a proper robust epidemiological way and you can't do that if you don't know what's going on. You know, and it's 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 similar with the uh, the data on offending. You know that we know that sex registered at birth is the strongest predictor for offending, for risk, um, and for patterns of offending. The most salient variable for analysis. But when you start confusing the data by recording some male crime as having been committed by a female 
you know, you 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 can't work out what's happening. You know, and and it makes scant difference because of of the uh, the differential rates of offending for males and for females. Most offending is committed by males. The minority is committed by females. When you look at individual offence categories, particularly sexual offences and serious violent offences, the difference is even greater, you know, with the vast majority of offending committed by males. So when you start to take some of those male instances of offending and cluster it with the female group, it's going to have very little, make very little difference to the overall rate for males, but it can have a very, very profound difference for the rate for females. There was a report by the BBC a um, couple of years ago, maybe, and they had asked a number of police forces for their data on um, reported child sexual offences committed by women. And in a five-year period, I believe it was, there had been an 84% increase. That's massive. That's massive. And we need to know what's going on. You know, sexual offending by women is stable and small. So if you've got an 84% increase, it is absolutely vital that you understand what's going on. You know, there are a variety of things that it could be. It could be that victims now feel more able to come forward, in which case that's a good thing. That 84% increase is a good thing because those offences were probably happening anyway, but now we know about it. So now we can more accurately address an existing problem, which we didn't know about properly until now. So that's a good thing. Is it because that the rate of reporting is the same, but more women are now committing these offences? In which case, that is absolutely worthy of investigation and we need targeted responses in order to tackle that. Or is it that some instances of male child sexual offending are now being recorded in the data for females, in which case that's a different response that's required. But you, you can't use these data because we know they're corrupted. We know they're corrupted at source. We know that police forces do record gender identity. We did a, a piece of research on it, which we published last year, and um, of the police forces who answered our questions about how a suspect's non-binary, professed non-binary identity be recorded in the data. Seven police forces said that they would then record the suspect's sex as unknown or indeterminate. One police force really struggled with the issue and said, you know, we take all of this very, very seriously. Um, and of course, there are real challenges here because, of course, there are I can't remember the exact number, but it was over 60 accepted and recognized genders. And we don't know quite how to record these in our data. Really? What are you doing? What are you doing? You know, I mean, I. You know, my, my background is more sort of qualitative research than quantitative, but I am a complete nerd about data. I really am. I get very, very passionate about data. And if you start corrupting the numbers at source, you're lost. Everything goes. Everything. Well, this is what we found out from the recent census result, that 
it's again, I call it crazy straw yeah. because we don't know what is real because these people who identify as transgender may or may not correctly answer the forms. We saw this when it was announced that the census would take into account sex. And mm. I don't know why we have to say birth sex because sex is immutable. Well, unfortunately, um, if you've got a gender recognition certificate, you are instructed by the guidance for that question on the census, what is your sex, that you can record your legally recognised acquired gender. So even the sex question screwed. And that's a problem. That's, that's a problem. Because the census is used for many reasons, but one of the uses of the census is to know if and how to provide services to certain groups. You cannot analyze a group based on the crazy straw approach to, I'll check whatever I feel like approach. Well, exactly. And I mean, at the moment, the impact may well be de minimis, right? That was always the intention that it was going to have a minimal impact. But you need to future-proof things, right? And I, I think that is what a lot a lot of the problems that we've got at the moment is because policymakers and legislature legislators didn't future proof things you know there was a bit of a shrug and eh, it'll be fine going on well it's not fine so let's talk about the amendments to the police crime sentencing and courts bill in the house of lords yeah so um we saw an opportunity to bring some amendments to try and protect women in prison. You know, we, we were under absolutely no illusions that these were ever going to pass, but it was an excellent opportunity to bring this issue into to the public forefront, to get some media attention and to importantly get, you know, we ended up getting, I think it was about three hours of debate in Hansard um, which is the you know the record of all the official record of all parliamentary debates. So the first amendment that we brought was uh, I say we brought that uh, Lord Blencathra brought, brought um, supported by other peers, um, was an amendment to the Gender Recognition Act that those those individuals who were either charged or convicted of a sexual offence should be held in the prison estate that matched their sex registered at birth. Um, so that would have had the effect that no rapists, no nobody, no child sexual offenders who are male, who are men, um, would be held in the female estate. The pushback on this was in the in the Lords was absolutely horrifying. You know, the the arguments that we had, you know, with the, the sort of the, the glamorous, you know, innocent, you know, hypothetical, you know, somebody who'd been falsely accused and would be absolutely vulnerable um, in the male estate. You know, there, there was a real, real push for um the rights of these individuals um, and a complete neglect to even consider the impact on women. So that was voted down as we knew it would be. Um, so Lord Blencathra didn't want to give up. He wanted to bring something else because, you know, you, you, you can go back, redraft it and resubmit it. And there was still time to do that. So he put forward, um, you know, the third spaces argument. You know, it's like, right, fine, let's accept 
that at least some of this population are so uniquely vulnerable um, to a degree and in a, a way which no other male in the, the prison estate possibly is, such that they absolutely cannot be managed within a men's prison, that it's unacceptable, it will be awful. So fine, we'll accept that. They can go in a separate unit. If you really can't be held with the men, fine, you can go in a separate unit, but you're not having access to female prisoners in any way, shape or form. That is off the table. Again, absolute uproar. You were talking about the... um, you know, the the arguments about suicide, that everybody will suddenly start killing themselves. Um, Lord Cashman, that was the point that he made. He said that, you know, he'd been written to by trans people who were absolutely terrified and who said that, you know, if this amendment passed, they would kill themselves. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's such a, it's such an abusive and manipulative threat. I mean, for a start, it's nonsense, but it's such an abusive and manipulative threat, you know. And, and you know, I, I thought we were beyond giving we giving into that. So anyway, so that fell again because apparently we knew it would fall because apparently it would be it risked being a violation of the human rights of these men if the possibility for them to be housed in the uh, female estate and have access to other women was denied them. Um, But what's interesting interesting is that now, about a year onwards, um, the Ministry of Justice is at the final stages of revising their policy on transgender prisoners. And we're seeing from statements that have been made, the policy hasn't been released yet. So we need to sort of work out exactly what those changes are and how it will interact with things like having a gender recognition certificate. But we can see those amendments have influenced what we're seeing. So sexual offenders, you're in the male estate unless there are very exceptional circumstances, but the presumption of allocation is now to the male estate. Um, And there appears to be something in there, in the wording, which indicates more use being made of separate units and separate facilities. So it's, it's really quite interesting that, you know, that, appears those amendments which fell appear still to have had some influence trickling down through policy and that was also also part of the reason for bringing them you know they might fail at the level of legislation and we knew they would but it's still important to get those arguments out there it's important to get that on in Hansard it's important to get that in the media because it still has an impact. It has an impact in different ways and to a different time scale. Yes, and what I read, what really upset me as well on this, is that the reforms being considered are about men with a certain criminal past. And as I mentioned yeah, at the beginning, absolutely. we all know that men are largely not even reported to the police. Well, exactly. We're taught silence. So, Knowing that we are taught silence as children and not just children, loads of women say nothing. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, even if it is a a so-called nice man, 
right? He still doesn't belong in the female estate. You know, this is the beginning of the conversation. This isn't the end point. But I think this is an important, still an important moment and an important shift because it's a complete reversal from the Ministry of Justice position up until then, which is, no, policies are working fine. It's all okay. Um, you know, we think at an operational level, they're very successful. And um, yeah, no, it's it's happy job, everybody. There's an, a recognition that they're not working well, that they are not protecting women in prison, and that there needs to be change and that change is possible. So it is the opening of a door for important further conversation going forwards, this is absolutely not the end of the matter, but it's it's an important shift to dialogue um, and to recognising the, the truth of what's going on. But the harder part to get through to these politicians, now we see it's not just men, it's Nicola Sturgeon and the likes of her. But the right answers changed. Have you noticed that? And the, I think that there was a very important shift in the Tory leadership race last year where the right answer changed the right answer was no longer trans women are women and they're the most vulnerable and etc etc or even a fudge around well of course we have to be deeply respectful and we have to you know giving a a typical non-answer the right answer changed the right answer was the rights of women are important women need to be protected even penny mordant who had previously stood quite happily at the dispatch box uh, in the Commons and said, trans women are women, trans men are men. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, these are deeply held beliefs of mine and I'll do anything I can to, you know, kind of further that. That's paraphrasing the last bit. Um, Even she backtracked and, you know, yes, it was an attempt to rewrite history, um, But it is still an important moment that she recognised that there was a right answer and a wrong answer and the right answer has changed. And I think we're seeing that now over the last two weeks. The right answer has changed, even for the SNP. The right answer is now trans women are women, but they're not women in always the same way that women are women. And there are some circumstances where these women need to be treated differently to other women. I mean, that's nonsense. It's, you know, garbled, you know, I mean, you know, the mental gymnastics that are required But there's a recognition that the right answers changed and what you were parroting two and a half weeks ago is now not the right answer and you desperately need to start rethinking things. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's still very, very, very far from uh, from where we want everybody to be. But it's important. We're at this point where I'm so happy you put the new truth out there because it's really important that we recognize this, but we also have to start looking at the agencies that brought this to the Scottish Parliament, such as Nicola Sturgeon opening the door to mermaids. And how do you roll that back? Just as I asked Ofcom regarding three cases, I sent them three cases that they judged as incorrect for these three media spots to have misgendered Sam Smith. I'm like, Sam Smith isn't even transgender. So you have in your code 
points two and five, which speak to the veracity and the fairness of media, but you've actually commissioned journalists to be untruthful, unfair, to lie. And this is what we're going to be facing in the next few years, where not only will the likes of the Tavistock be sued, I have to wonder if we're not going to see media groups like The Guardian sued for propagating an ideology, because that has never been the mandate of journalism to put out there an ideology and bang on about it. Because if you were from Mars and you landed on earth five years ago, you would think that transgender people outnumbered women. Yes, you would. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we were talking about um, Sheila Jeffries and I think, you know, the, the worst and most emblematic examples of this colonization you know, or when you talk to trans widows, where the inhabiting not just of womanhood and a really sick, pornified, misogynistic um, conception of femininity happens, but often when it is that precise woman's identity which is inhabited and which is colonized you know some of some of the accounts that you read and that you hear are absolutely terrifyingly chilling and we need to see that this has got its its roots not just in you know the the, the sort of wider cultural issues of men's rights activism but in individual stories of abuse as well you know, and, and children and the women who have been married to some of these men, you know, they were the victims in this, you know, often the silent victims for many years. And I don't mean silent because of, uh, you know, as, as a way to kind of, you know, disempower them from, you know, their brave voices in speaking out about this. But, you know, because we know that patterns of abuse, it's often a long time and it's many years and it's, you know, it's coercive control and it, it's it's a whole raft of abusive manipulations and practices that go into silencing women and silencing children when they're experiencing this. And I think, you know, they've been in the trenches you know, at the chalk face, as it were, really mixing my metaphors, but never mind, you know, in an absolutely terrifying way um, and long before many of us. Um, you know, and you, you were talking about, you know, being support humans. I think it was Victoria Smith who said that, you know, despite all of these stunning and brave trans women, it's funny how everybody knows who's still supposed to do the bottom wiping. We know that. We absolutely know that. And, you know, you mentioned safeguarding as well. You know, we cannot have a presumption that, oh, nobody would do that, or a presumption, hashtag be kind, you're just being mean. That's not how safeguarding works. But when it comes to this sacred caste, they're seen as being above all of this. You know, of course they wouldn't. Of course, nobody would pretend to be them. They are genuinely that. And by virtue of the fact that they are genuinely that, they are by definition excused all of the normal processes and practices and policies and safeguards that are put in place. 
Um, and it's it's quite remarkable the blind spot that people have about this. And I'm still not entirely sure what it is. You know, is it fear? Um, is it brainwashing? Is it you? Know, what is it? You know, I mean, I'm I'm in discussions with with people about um, DBS checks, disclosure barring, and service checks, and about how the enhanced privacy rights that attach to somebody when they change gender as part of changing their identity mean that they do get this this sacred caste status that. Even if, I mean, there's all sorts of problems with the, the the DBS system, which relies far too heavily on applicant honesty to, quote unquote, do the right thing and disclose all previously used identities, um, you know, and safeguarding can't rely on people doing the right thing. So that's one loophole that needs to be closed up. But even if you're, you're the transgender applicant does decide to do the right thing, they're permitted to do so in a secret private way, such that the organisation with a statutory responsibility for safeguarding still won't know who this person is in front of them, because this person will still be entitled to hide their identity. And to, you know, we, we've discussed how it's impossible to hide your sex, but on the official form to hide their sex registered at birth. But when, you know, you, you start trying to have these conversations, you know, you, you can almost see people shoving their fingers in their ears and go, no, it's fine. No, 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 it's absolutely fine. There really isn't a problem because we've got a process. And because we've got a process, it must be fine. And we know it's fine because we've got this process. And you kind of have this sort of circular argument where the existence of a process by definition means that it's fine and we know that it's fine because we can refer to the process and it it, it doesn't add up but when you start trying to chip away at it and say hi well what about this what about that here's a scenario a safeguarding risk which will eventuate because of what you have in place you know it's it's just like you know no run away run away it, it, it doesn't exist it's not real. Um, it's all fine. Don't worry about it. So it's 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 a curious phenomenon that with no other group would this exist? Would these enhanced privacy rights exist? Would this special status exist? Would this sacred caste status exist? Um, would they be excused from so many practices and policies that, that we have in place and for very good reason? You work specifically on the prison issue, but as I mentioned earlier, I see the larger struggle here is to remove mm. gender from law. I think the GRA's got to go. Um, I think it's ludicrous. Um, I don't think it should be in law at all. Um, and I think the Equality Act needs to be radically overhauled. But I don't think we're there yet by a long way. I think it takes political will and courage to do that. Um, I think that this will take a decade plus to undo. And I think that in terms of 
quote unquote, the fight. Um, we're at the beginning of the middle section. We've, re we've reached the end of the beginning and we're now at the beginning of the middle section and there's a long way to go. I do believe we will get there, but I think it's, it's going to take a decade plus to achieve. And unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of suffering along the way, mainly women and children. You mentioned earlier court cases. I think we're going to see a whole raft of court cases coming about from children, from, ch you know, children as they grow up, as they reach adulthood. Um, and we re they realise what's actually happened to them. I was really struck by the fact that, yeah, it, it was it was the, it was the, the, the influence of paedophilia in this. And I was struck by, you know, it's it's not just the inappropriate sexualization of children, which has always been something that in different guises we've had to fight against and protect against. There is the adultification of children as well. It, and with that simultaneously um, downplaying and seeking to remove parental responsibility. You know, children are children, right? And we have duties as parents, we have duties and responsibilities towards them. They are children, they are not adults. But if children can start asserting their gender identity, if children can start changing their pronouns, changing their names in school and other places, independently of their parents' wishes, despite their parents' wishes, without their parents' knowledge. If children can start consenting to breast binders or hormone treatment or surgeries or whatever it is, if they can start consenting to all of those things, what else are they able to consent to? You know, I, I think it is part of disrupting the parental bond and the parental responsibilities. I think it's part of trying to feed into lowering the age of consent, because if you can consent to one thing, you can consent to the other thing. I think this is absolutely dangerous at the, the deepest levels. It's just absolutely horrifying when you start realising what's going on. We have to have the existence of the trans child because it gets back to this as a diagnosable medical condition, doesn't it? You know, the, the only way you can have the legitimate trans adult is if you also have the trans child. Right. If, if this is also a condition which has an incidence within childhood and which is diagnosable and treatable in childhood as well, it lends credibility to the trans adult.